So this is Hebrews 9, starting at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Then jumping down to verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's holy word. Uh, Please pray with me as I ask his blessing on it. God, we come before you this evening as, uh, as a community, as a group of people that are in need. Whether in our relationships, our friendships, relationships with family members, relationships with roommates, or in our work, in our side jobs, in our schooling, maybe just in our hearts, we need to be encouraged. We might have trouble. We might have difficulty. I pray that you would use these words tonight to be an encouragement. As we look at the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, that you sent your son to do on our behalf, on behalf of those who believe in him, those who trust in him, as we look at what it means that Jesus shed his blood for us, I pray that you would give us understanding in our hearts. Help us to know and to understand what you want for us in this passage, what you want us to know and take away from it. I especially pray, Lord, for myself that you would bless me with with the ability to speak and to talk about this passage in a way that is true and helpful and makes sense, and that is good and encouraging for uh, for these students and that would build them up more and more into the men and women you're making them to be. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this evening. In your son's name I pray. Amen. There's a movie that I have watched. Maybe some of y'all have watched it. It's called Saving Private Ryan. It's a, it's a military movie. It's a it's a war movie. I think it was directed by, um, by Steven Spielberg, maybe? I don't know. Uh, my movie trivia is not necessarily on par but uh it's 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 pretty violent um but it's there's there's it's a kind of action-packed gripping story and in it there's this guy private ryan as you might uh presume ryan's his last name played by matt damon who is trapped behind enemy lines he's trapped by the german armies in normandy and the united states military sends tom hanks and his squad to rescue him I feel like if I was trapped behind enemy lines, Tom Hanks would not be the actor that I would want to, like, come rescue me. Maybe, like, Dwayne The Rock Johnson or something. But they sent Tom Hanks, 
and his squad rescue him. And over the course of the movie, one by one, the team gets like killed in battle. They go up against these Germans in different kind of skirmishes, and one by one they get gunned down. And at the end of the movie, the battle's over, right? The final battle, the, the Americans faced off against the Germans. The good guys won. They rescued Private Ryan. Tom Hanks, uh, in the final battle, was mortally wounded. So he's lying there, he's dying. And he looks up at Private Ryan, and he like grabs him by the hand, and he says, earn this. Earn this. Earn this rescue. Earn this sacrifice. Cut to the present, and an elderly Matt Damon is standing over their graves, like the graves of all the soldiers that died, in a military seminary, and he breaks down crying, saying, like, was I a good enough man? Did I earn this? Did I earn their sacrifice? That's pretty heavy. I mean, that's like, when you think about it, you're like, man, that kind of sucks, Tom Hanks. <laughs> that, is a, that is a bad uh, burden to place on poor Private Ryan. And, but, but sometimes, y'all, I think that we approach the death of Jesus that way. We see Jesus, we talk about Jesus' death, we talk about Jesus' death on our behalf a lot. Um, We think of Jesus' death in these terms. In order for us to be right with God, right, Jesus' death helped us out a little bit, but then we're on our own to be good enough, to earn it, to earn the rest of the way. Jesus' death helped us a little bit, or and now you know it's up to us to be make sure that 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 sacrifice was worth it, that we can be good enough people, that we can be good enough on our own. It's up to us to earn this. But like if you if you really think about it, that is an exhausting way to live. And that's also not what the Bible says Jesus' death accomplished for us. He wasn't just an example. He didn't just get us halfway across the gap and it's up to us to kind of jump the rest of the way. That's not at all what the Bible says Jesus' death did. His death, the shedding of his blood, it didn't just kind of help us out a little bit. Um, And so it's worth asking as we come to this passage that is all about the blood of Jesus and what it bought for us. What, what did Jesus' blood do for those who believe in him? What, when we talk about Jesus' death as a sacrifice for us, what does that mean? What does it mean if you believe in Jesus that he died for you? And what I want to suggest this passage is saying is that because Jesus shed his blood for you, that sacrifice earned eternal life for everyone who believed in him. Like if you just take one thing away, his, it's, it's his sacrifice, it's his blood that's doing the earning. It's not that you have to earn something in payment for that. That's not grace. That's not a gift. Because Jesus shed his blood for sinners, that sacrifice earned eternal life if you believe in him. There's two things, two aspects of this, two things that Jesus' blood does for us. One, Jesus shed his blood to put away sin. And secondly, that Jesus shed his blood to purify our consciences. Those are, those are language that, the, these, that this passage uses. Jesus shed his blood to put away sin. Secondly, Jesus shed his blood to purify our consciences. So first, Jesus shed his blood to put away sin. The blood of Jesus is repeatedly talked about throughout this passage, and we just sang a whole song about it. There's a fountain filled with blood. Um, It's talked about over and over, right? Like, um, blood, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons uh, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So th- this passage is talking about the blood of Jesus. 
And the main thing that it's referring to, it's not just, it's not limited to like the physical shedding of Jesus's blood, but the comprehensive suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his receiving of the wrath of God for his people, right? Not just the physical suffering, but also the mental, emotional, and spiritual sufferings that Jesus went through. That whenever you see like this passage talking about the blood of Jesus, that's what it's talking about. It's not just sort of, you know, his, the, the, the blood that came out of him when the nails pierced his hands. It's talking about all of his sufferings as kind of a whole unit. And it's using this term like the blood of Christ to refer to that in shorthand. Um, Jesus shed his blood, right, according to the plan of God to save his people. And it was for the purpose, we see later in the passage, it was for the purpose of securing an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption for his people. Um, And so this passage draws all sorts of comparisons between uh, the, the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of sacrifices, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, both from the the geographical or physical location from which the sacrifices was were offered, right? Um, Jesus, it says that Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, The sacrifice that the priests offered were in first a tent that human hands made, and then later in a temple that human hands made. But what this passage is suggesting is that the the sacrifice that Christ offered for his people was made in a place that was not made with human hands. Right? Last week we talked about how all of these stipulations, all of these procedures and ceremonies in the Old Testament were pointing to the spiritual reality. Jesus' sacrifice for us was made in the true spiritual place before the Father, before God. Um, it's not just that uh, it's made in a better place, but it's also a better offering. Jesus' blood is more precious, more, more valuable, more uh, able to and powerful to take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats was merely symbolic. It was just a symbol of the things that were to come. But Jesus' blood that he has shed for his people is the reality, is the, the, the truth the thing that those things pointed towards. Finally, um, the previous ministry that the, the priests did, it was incomplete. It was, it had to keep on going. It had to repeatedly, repeatedly happen over and over again. The sacrificial system had to go on and on and on. But this passage says that Jesus, in verse 12, it says, he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ's ministry was real, and he brought reality to the symbols of the priests. Right? Um, Christ's sacrifice is more significant than the other sacrifices. It is more real because it is, it is the reality. It is the fulfillment of those things. The priests stand continually at their service, it says at the end of this passage, that um, You know, Christ having offered once to bear the sins of many, um, it it is finished, it is over. He does not have to offer sacrifices anymore. It is finished. He's finished his work and sat down with the Father. And the redemption that has been purchased is an eternal redemption. Eternal is, like, it means past, present, and future without bounds of time. The redemption that Jesus purchased in his blood is is an a way to draw near to the Father, a way to draw near to God, 
past, present, and future that it lasts forever, that has no limitations, that has no um, time expiration date, has no limit in terms of uh, how much his people might sin. And that might sound a little alarming to us, but I think that's what the Bible is teaching us, that God's people, if they believe in Jesus, the redemption that has been purchased for them is of infinite power and infinite validity. Now, now we, we throw that word around redemption a lot, um, but what that means is uh, the release or the freeing of a captive. To redeem someone uh, in, in the ancient world, to redeem someone most often looked like going to uh, a market where slaves were traded and purchasing someone's freedom to redeem them out of bondage, to redeem them out of captivity, to purchase them out of slavery. Uh, The theologian John Stott defines it. He says, redemption means deliverance by payment of a price, specially applied to the ransoming of slaves. And the Bible uses this metaphor uh, of us quite a lot, actually, that we, apart from Christ, due to our own actions, due to the fallen sin nature that we're born with, are fallen in sin, are enslaved to sin. We are in need of redemption. We are in need of being bought out of that. We have incurred a debt before God by our actions. We are needing to be brought out of that, and we can't do it on our own. Jesus offered his blood, his life. He offered himself in our place. That is, that is what is happening through the redemption uh, that Christ offers. We are being brought out of slavery. He is doing away with sin, uh, being freeing us out of the, the, the slavery that comes from being fallen in sin. His sacrifice was also a one-time event because his blood was precious enough and powerful enough to essentially to pay that price. Um, to pay that price that allows us to be free, to, sufficient to take away the penalty and the punishment that were due to us for sin. Now, sometimes that might seem a little harsh, but when you think about it, God is infinitely good and infinitely precious and infinitely worthy of our love, not as a harsh father, not as a sort of distant king, but a loving and intimate father who desires to be near to us. And any time, right, like, any time that we sin against one another, defacing the image of God in our neighbor, in our brother or sister, any time that we sin against God by deciding to follow our own counsel, to to lean our own understanding, to go our own way, we are incurring debt before him. And an offense against an infinitely good person must be of infinite severity. Of infinite weight. I know know that's kind of like heavy. The penalty and the punishment were insurmountable. For God to remain good and just, right? God is perfectly good. For him to be good, evil must be punished. And we like that until it's applied to us. (laughs) We like that until we are the ones who are under the gun. But God is good, and he is just. That's what the Bible says. Evil must be punished. You and I have evil in our hearts apart from Christ, and so we deserved an eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. 
A wage is something that we earn. And so by our sin, even sins in our hearts against our neighbor, the, the, the wage that is earned as a result of that is death. Romans 6.23 continues, though. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so what this passage is saying is, you know, when, when Jesus entered into the holy place, he offered his blood to secure an eternal redemption. Um, it's saying that he has dealt with the problem that that sin uh, presented to us. He has dealt with that finally and completely. Right? That's what it means when it says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Christ offered himself who is without blemish and thus secured an eternal redemption for us. Right? Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, but into the true heavenly place to offer himself once for our sins. Look, in verse 26, it says, As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The result of Jesus' death for us is that he has put away sin. The gospel is this. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, if you you know can confess that you are a sinner, that you need his help, and you trust in him, he has put away your sin. It's done. It's over. That's it. Once for all, at the end of the ages, he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This passage talks about Jesus' blood as washing us. Our sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus. And we can think about this like when you become a Christian, the blood of Jesus washes you and, and makes you clean. It is putting away sin from you. Sin is no more affecting you. It is no more burdening you. It does not need to cause you any more guilt or shame. You have no more debt before God. You are free, free to live the life that he has called you to. To put it in other terms, when we accept Christ, we are washed by his blood spiritually. And when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ in place of our sin. And there's therefore, there's therefore no more wrath that remains for us. Like everything, and that applies to everything that you've ever done. Like past, present, and future. Even the, the secret sins that you keep in the dark places of your heart that make you feel the most ashamed. Like this blood covers that as well. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this sacrifice that Jesus has done, this passage makes clear it's entirely his doing by means of his own blood. He is doing it. He entered into the holy place. He offered himself up. He made the sacrifice. We contribute nothing to it. Right? That's what it's saying when it says um, that he offered himself without blemish to God. Sometimes I think we might be tempted to say, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus sacrifice. We, we live as if this were true, that we, we trust in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But then we think that it's up to us to add to his good works. You know, we need to be good people now. But to try to add to the sacrifice of Jesus is to be adding blemish to it. Adding our own works, which are tainted by sin, would be to make the sacrifice offered to God one that is not without blemish. Not that that's actually possible, right? If you believe in Jesus, it is finished. He already offered that sacrifice. You can't offer anything in addition to it. You and I 
are stained by sin, weakened by it, impacted in every fiber of our being. And so when Jesus goes to the cross for us, he does it entirely on his own, on our behalf. Imagine this. Imagine, um, imagine you are treading water in an endless sea. And, you know, some of y'all might be able to last a good long while. Um, but eventually, right, we would all get exhausted and terrified. And ultimately, everyone would drown. Because there would be no ground for us to stand on. It would be futile. You would eventually slip beneath the waves and drown. But imagine instead that someone comes along and plucks you out of the water. And takes you to a place, to a ground that you didn't know was there, and you stand upon solid ground. And you can rest. You can stand upon something that is other than yourself, that is not your own doing, right? You didn't make this island in the middle of the ocean appear. Um, you, you've been saved. This is a picture of what it looks like for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to rest upon something that is not your own, to stand upon something that is someone else's, so that you can have life. Jesus has done that for you if you believe in him. He has made a solid foundation upon which we can stand. He has made his perfect righteousness available to us, both to take away our sin and for us to be declared righteous before God. If we believe in the good news he brings, that if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us, Right? it, it's, it is as if we were plucked out of the endless sea of God's wrath. Because that sea actually isn't endless. For those who are in Christ, Jesus put an end to it. He did away with God's wrath by absorbing it into himself. And if this is true, then you can't look down on anyone else. If it's true that it's only thanks to Jesus that our sin has been taken away, we can't think that we're better than anyone else. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor, he writes, You will treat other people the way that you think that God has treated you. And so if, if we think that God has given us a partial salvation that we contribute to, that, that like our good works kind of are a bonus on top of what Jesus has done, then we will start to be kind of arrogant, kind of prideful, kind of haughty. And we will look down on people if they're not doing things the way that we think that they should. But if you believe that Jesus has just because of his love for you, plucked you out of certain doom, you will start to treat other people with love and kindness because you realize that you're no better. Right? To, to think about the earlier metaphor, right? If you're, you're treading water in an endless ocean, swimming in the endless sea, knowing that you're going to drown, and then criticizing someone else for not being as good a swimmer as you. Like, it would be ridiculous. It would be ludicrous. God saves the outwardly moral person and the outwardly wicked person the exact same way, which is believing in the, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Another thing that you cannot do anymore is dwell on your own sin as something that separates you from God. If you are continually down on yourself, if you're continually you know, feeling the weight and guilt and shame of your sin, then I would, I would encourage you lovingly, like, Believe that this is true about you. Christ has taken your sin away if you believe in him. Um, if you do not yet, yeah, so cease from believing the guilt and shame uh, of your own sin 
Look to the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. He has taken your sins away. And by the way, right, this is, I should specify, this is only true of people who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. So if you're here tonight, um, no matter where you're at, I'm, again, I'm really glad that you're here. But if you do not yet know Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in him, then um, you are, then this isn't true of you. This sacrifice that Jesus has made has only been applied to those who believe in him. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, you are in danger of receiving the fullness of God's wrath. But the good news is this, that Jesus' arms are open to you. That no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing, turn to Christ, repent of your sins, pray asking for God to forgive you, and, and he will give you life in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can add to it. Nothing you've done disqualifies you. Nothing that you could do would disqualify you. Nothing you ever will do could separate you from the life that is to be had in God if you come to Christ, if you believe in Jesus, if you ask forgiveness for your sins. Whoever comes to Christ, God will never cast out. That's a promise in the Bible. But that's, not, that's only half the equation. His blood removes our sin, right? Yes, but it does more than that. The author of Hebrews also writes that it purifies our conscience. It has another effect, which is that Jesus shed his blood to also purify our conscience. And what this means um, is, is essentially that you have peace. You have peace with God and peace from God. Your relationship with God for the rest of eternity is one that is defined by love and peace. That's what it means when it says that our conscience is purified in verse uh, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He specifically says, purify our consciences from dead works. And that's a specific reference to uh, something the Hebrews were being tempted by. They're being tempted to to essentially ignore the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf and to go back and to say, okay, what makes us good, what makes us be able to draw near to God is by being really good at following rules, being really good at doing the right thing, Obedience to rituals and ceremonial worship as the way for them to draw near to God. But the blood of Christ purified them away from that. And it makes their conscience, the, the place where they, in their hearts, sense uh, their, their sort of moral standing before God. And it, and it brings it to life. Because one of the problems that we have apart from Jesus is that we're not at peace with God. We can kind of work backwards from that. We don't have peace with God. Um, Right? In Romans 1, Paul writes, although they knew God, although the people of this world knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um, so even for those of us who might not necessarily like sense this, the Bible says this is true. That apart from Jesus, we do not have peace with God. That there is, like I said earlier, a debt that stands and justice that must be done. We do not have peace in our hearts and we do not have peace with God. But everything changes through the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just cover our sin. It actually purifies us as well, and it makes us, it gives us Christ's righteousness. God proclaims us not only innocent, because our sin is taken away by the blood of Jesus, but he also declares us perfectly and actively righteous. It's not just that we were at a negative infinity and brought up to zero, but Having received the righteousness of Jesus through his blood, we are brought up to positive infinity, I guess you could think, in those terms. 
The blood of Jesus Christ doesn't just cover our sins. It gives us the righteousness of Christ. Um, right? That's what he's saying in, in verses 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, who, uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God, how much more is that going to purify us and sanctify us? How much more is that going to make us righteous? It's going to serve um, for, and and he's again addressing the specific struggle of the Hebrew, the people that uh, the author's writing to here. Rituals um, and and sort of ceremonies that would serve for the purification of the flesh. If those things had some validity, right, they were good for washing the flesh, how much more is the blood of Jesus going to purify our conscience? Um, One of my favorite pictures of this dynamic is in the book of Zechariah. This is complete tangent. But um, there's a guy named Joshua who is – there's a vision that the prophet Zechariah has of this guy named Joshua who is, who is in the presence of God. And I'm going to read ver- chapter 3 from Zechariah, verses 3 through 5. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So this is a metaphor. That on our own, when God looks at us, our sin is so filthy, morally speaking, that it's as if our garments are completely soiled, stained, filthy. But something that Jesus does when Jesus shed his blood for us It is as if the filthy rags that we are wearing are taken off of us and we receive pure, white, shining robes of righteousness. That's kind of what it looks like. That's that's a picture of what this means. This is what it means for our conscience to be purified. That Jesus, by his sacrifice, has earned us righteousness before God. Your sin, which stained your conscience, which prevents you from having peace with God, has been removed. And... The perfect, pure robes of the righteousness of Jesus are given to you. Christ put away sin, and he purifies your consciousness by giving you his eternal redemption, by giving you his eternal righteousness. And by the way, right, like, you might hear this and be like, well, Nathaniel, I think I believe in Jesus, and I still struggle with sin. How should I understand that? To which I'd be like, yeah, that is, that's a really good and normal and common experience. Actually, the Bible says that Fighting and struggling with sin for the rest of your lives is actually the normal thing that is going to happen. And it's going to look different for all of you. This passage is not saying that God makes you actually perfectly righteous immediately. He declares you to be righteous. He says, I'm going to treat you because of the blood of Jesus. I'm going to treat you as if you were righteous because I love you and I'm going to bring you to myself. That's what... The process of God making you actually righteous is a long process that is called sanctification, where you are gradually made more and more like Jesus. God declares us righteous and says, okay, now I'm going to get to work. It's a little bit like uh, the, the sort of Renaissance sculptor Michelangelo. He would, whenever he would get like a marble block, he would, he would get this, you know, a big marble block to make his big sculptures. Michelangelo did a uh, you know, the, the famous, like, David sculpture and a bunch of other ones. Uh, Michelangelo wrote, the sculpture is actually already complete within the marble block when he gets it. Before I start my work, it's already there. 
I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. Like in Michelangelo's mind, the sculpture that he was going to make, it was already present, even though the, the marble block was just a, like a brick of marble. It was already there. All he had to do was to chisel away the superfluous material, the, the extra bits of marble that were not going to be a part of the finished sculpture. In a similar way, if you were in Jesus, you already actually have the righteousness of Christ. Your conscience has been purified. You already have the righteousness of Christ. And so all that remains, you know, metaphorically speaking, is for God to take his chisel and to remove the superfluous material, to remove our idols, to remove our sin, to remove the things that are of this world that are passing away. Um, And so if this is true, right, like you can be cleansed and know that you're forgiven. You can know that God is accepting you as righteous because Jesus died for you and it is finished. If this is true, um, you can have peace with God. And like, by the way, it might not always feel that way subjectively. You can know that these things are true objectively while feeling very distant from God, while really struggling with sin. You can know that these things are true objectively while it doesn't feel that way subjectively. You might go through seasons of feeling distant from God. You might open your eyes and see more of your sin than ever before. You might feel like just, I mean, you might just feel awful at some points. But what if this is true, if this passage is true, that, that in Christ's blood and his sacrifice made once for all, that our consciences are purified, then any of those times that you don't feel the, the reality of that subjectively, if you're in Christ, that's not a sign of God's displeasure. It's the work of the chisel in his hands as he is purifying you in reality, as he is making you more and more the person that he is making you to be, conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. And so if this is true, then we are freed. Like, y'all have so much freedom in Christ to try things, to try different ways to serve God and to love your neighbor. And even if they fail, if you are in Christ, he has purified your conscience. And so nothing can touch you. There is no condemnation for you. God is at work turning you, making you to be the men and women that he wants you to be. And so I ask you, like, where might God be calling you to live into this reality? to trust that this objective reality is true about you, even though there might be a gap between the objective and the subjective experience that you have? Where might God be calling you to show the love of Christ to someone, to welcome them, to include them, to pursue them? If this is true, we are also free to trust and to rest that God has chosen to show us mercy and that he will not remember our sins anymore. If you believe in Jesus, what this passage is saying is, You are as close to God as Jesus is. You are as loved by God as Jesus is. Which, that should change you. That should change the way that you think about the world. That should change the way that you think about the future. The blood of Christ has put away your sin forever and secured for you an eternal redemption. I said this last week. um, We live in a historical period of God's sort of dealings with mankind where the very next thing that's going to happen is the return of Jesus. As it says in the last verse of this section, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, but not for the same reasons. He's already sacrificed for sin. 
not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We are blessed to be able to look back at the, what, the work that Jesus is doing, and we look ahead with anticipation to the return of Christ, where the, uh, the subjective and the objective will become one forever, and we will always be aware of the love of God that has been expressed for us in Christ, because we will be with him. The new world is just around the corner, when sin and sadness and sorrow will pass away forever, and we will live forever. Let's pray.